Thank you for listening to the Sunday School Teaching Ministry of Pastor Luke Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. Praise the Lord. We are going to look into the precious and powerful Word of God today, back into the amazing book of Ecclesiastes. This is an incredible study, and I've just thoroughly enjoyed and enjoy what we're going to talk about today as well. So, first question for you today, how did you come to church this morning? I don't mean your mode of transportation. I am asking if you came to church with the right heart attitude today. Did you come with a humble heart? Did you come spiritually prepared to hear what the Lord has for you to hear? As I've heard other people ask it, and I like, it, I like this question, what is the posture of your heart? What is the posture of your heart? So today, the preacher in Ecclesiastes, as he's called there at the beginning, the preacher who has experienced everything life has to offer under the sun, Solomon, who has the most power, the most wealth, uh, and the most opportunity to do anything he wished to do, and he tried it all, he is going to tell us now some wisdom and how to have the right attitude when we come to worship in the Lord's house. Now, we're actually going to get valuable wisdom regarding three things here in this chapter, God, government, and gold. <laughs> and, but first, we're going to talk about the Lord and, our, and, our, um, and how we should come and how we should approach the Lord in worship. So here's what we're going to do, Ecclesiastes chapter 5 and verses 1 through 7. I'm going to read through all seven verses, and then we're going to break each one down, okay? So follow along with me, if you would, please. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Keep thy foot when thou goest, to the house of God, and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools. For they consider not that they do evil. Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven, and thou upon earth. Therefore let thy words be few. For a dream cometh through the multitude of business, and a Fool's voice is known by the multitude of words. When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. Suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin. Neither say thou before the angel that it was an error. Wherefore should God be angry at thy voice and destroy the work of thine hands? For in the multitude of dreams and many words, there are also diverse vanities. But fear thou God. All right, so these are some very serious and sobering verses. And the overarching idea in these seven verses is that we need to have a genuine reverence for God. Particularly when we go into his house for worship. Now, the first point here, and this is what we're going to talk about, and that is then how to behave in the house of God. How to behave in the house of God. 
When it comes to worship in God's house, back then in Solomon's day, is just like it is today, human nature is that we, want, we tend to be either too ritualistic and routine about going to the house of God and worship, or we get too relaxed and become irreverent. Both are harmful extremes, and we want to avoid both of those. So every time we come to church, every time we worship the Lord, every time we pray and bow our head to pray before the Lord, whether it's alone or in the house of God, every time we open the word of God, every time we listen to the preaching of the word of God, we need to actually stop and think of the depth of what is going on at the moment. Ecclesiastes chapter five, let's look at verse one. He says, keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools. For they consider not that they do evil. Now, what was the house of God that Solomon was talking about back then? Well, it was Solomon's temple. He had built the temple for the Lord. David, his father, wanted to build it, but he was not able to. God said, sorry, David, you have been a man of war and a man of blood, and so I am going to let your son build the temple. But David did gather many of the uh, items that were needed and uh, then Solomon built this amazing temple. It was the most amazing temple, Jewish temple, that has ever stood. It, it was incredible. It, it uh, would blow away any, ex- any existing building that we could think of. It's, it was known for its exquisite beauty. Almost everything in there was covered in gold or precious stones. I mean everything. You walk in and everything is just covered in gold. That's an amazing thought. Uh, some, some historians estimate that if you were to take what it, uh, all of Solomon's temple and put it in today, today's dollars, it would equal three to six billion dollars to construct. It took hundreds of thousands of workers to build it and they would build everything off-site pretty much because it was such a holy place that when they would bring everything to actually put it all together, they didn't want to make any sound. There was to be no sound anywhere near that they were trying to retain the holiness of this place. They'd build everything, bring it in, and put it together. It was meant to be a place where worshipers would feel the honor and reverence of God. You would walk in there and see all that gold and know this is a holy place and I am in the presence of the living God. And when you came into this house of God, as it says here in verse one, it says to keep thy foot. And it also says to come ready to hear. Those phrases both are referring to our demeanor. Come, in other words, come slowly. Keep thy foot. Come slowly and ready to listen to the Lord. More than, don't come mouth first. Now, currently in Jerusalem, this is is a very interesting thing here. I'm gonna have a picture for you. These are some uh, steps that lead up. These are from Uh, Zerubbabel's temple, but these are the steps still in existence that led to the temple mount and led to the temple. Now, very interesting thing about these steps, uh, you'll notice there's a wide one, then a narrow one, then a wide one, then a narrow one, then a wide, then narrow. It goes all the way up that way. Why? The idea behind that was so that nobody can run up those steps. You can't make it quickly up something like this. The idea here is Slow down. Slow down when you go to the house of the Lord. Stop and think of where you're headed. You're going up into the house of God. 
think about that. Don't rush into worship. As it says here in verse one, the thing to avoid is the sacrifice of fools, which just meant thoughtless sacrificing. When you come to the house of God, this outward sacrifice, but nothing really going on inside of your heart, God says avoid that kind of sacrifice. That, sac- that sacrifice he even says here at the end of the verse is evil, and they don't even know it. So come to the house of the Lord to worship slowly, thoughtfully, reverently, and ready to hear whatever the Lord might want to tell us. And as he says then in the next verse, verse two, be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven, and thou upon earth. Therefore let thy words be few. Now if we come to church mouth first, we're gonna get ourselves into trouble. Sometimes I've noticed, that, and we probably all experience this, this can happen when you get together for a prayer meeting or any kind of public prayers. It feels like sometimes people are catching up on their, uh, their prayer time that they missed all week long. You know, they're gonna, they're gonna s- s- pray now in front of everybody. They get a 30-minute prayer about everything known to man. We have to be careful not to let our minds wander while we pray, we gotta be careful when we pray that our prayers don't turn into long, meaningless mumbo jumbo. Now there's not necessarily something wrong with long prayers, but our hearts need to be into this thing. You know, on Mount Carmel, when Elijah the the prophet, Elijah was doing battle with the prophets of Baal, the prophets of Baal had these really long prayers. And Elijah just had this very one simple prayer, straight to the point, and God listened to that prayer. Uh, J. Edward Orr used to advise brief prayers, especially in prayer meetings and public praying. He said that when somebody prays in a meeting, for his first three minutes, everyone prays with him. Uh, Then, should he continue a second three minutes, everyone prays for him. Should he continue a third three minutes, the others start to pray against him. (laughs) And the, the point here is just keep it real with the Lord, keep it real with the Lord. As it says here, come before the Lord, listening and not talking so much. Don't come as an expert, come as a learner. God is in heaven, we are here on earth. In other words, what could you possibly teach God? When you come, God, you should be like this. You know, you, things should be like this, excuse me? But if we, if we come listening to God, if we come before God knowing he is in heaven, I'm on earth, let me just hear what he has to say. If we listen, it's possible to get an actual word from heaven itself. And this is great wisdom for life that we're hearing, it's very practical. Say less, learn more. Just like this next wise proverb, verse three, for a dream cometh through the multitude of busyness, is what really it should be, and a fool's voice is known by the multitude of words. So, you know, if you read the book of Proverbs, which is also mostly by Solomon, one of the themes is that a fool talks a lot. Uh, it's just the way it is. In fact, it's how you can often spot a fool. They, they run in their mouth. And that's the idea behind this verse as well. Just as the busier someone is, everyone knows that a night of restlessness is coming because of the dreams in his uh, a racing mind. If, if, you're the, if you're, there's a lot, of, a lot of stuff going on in life, you'll probably tonight not sleep very well. Your mind's gonna be racing. You might have a lot of dreams. The same goes for a fool. 
everyone just knows that there's going to be a multitude of words coming out of a fool's mouth. It's the same thing. The New Living Translation, which is more like a paraphrase, not a word-for-word translation, but sometimes it's helpful in understanding certain passages. It puts this, it's a, uh, it puts this verse this way. Too much activity gives you restless dreams. Too many words makes you a fool. And, and to give an example of, of how too many words can make you foolish, Solomon talks about how foolish people come before God and then start to make empty vows. And unfortunately, this happens more than it should in the house of God. Look at verses four and five. When thou vowest a vow unto God, defer not to pay it, for he hath no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. A commonly overlooked sin among God's people is the sin of broken vows. You know, it's promising things to God and then failing to live up to that promise or that vow that you've made to the Lord. A person might come into the house of God, for example, and in a desperate situation in their life, and they make a vow to the Lord. Lord, I'll give you, I'll I'll, I'll start giving you uh, 30 to 50%, you know, of my income if you'll just get me out of this mess that I'm in. I'll start giving you more than I've ever given you if you just help me out. Or perhaps God has uh, already done something big in your life or uh, God's taken you through something hard. And out of thankfulness, we might say, God, I'm gonna start praying more. I'm gonna start doing this more for you. I promise you, God, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be a better person. You, we gotta be very careful with our words here. This is a great reminder. Be very careful. God takes our words seriously. There are several vows, and I think here, personally, that this idea of vows in Scripture is even deeper than just a general commitment or something like that, but um, there could, because there are several vows in Scripture, we know of one very foolish vow that Jephthah made, who made a vow to give away the first person who, or the first thing, he said, that came out of his house. Maybe he thought it was going to be an animal coming to greet him, you know, one of his dogs or something, I don't know. But whatever the case is, his daughter came out, and he made that vow, and so he had to keep it and give his daughter to the Lord. That, that phrase is so sacred, uh, making a vow to the Lord. I remember just growing up and hearing a lot about vows to the Lord and always um, having a fear in my heart for making a a um, a hasty vow. So I I would tell you, this is a sacred thing and I'm extremely careful about vows. I've made many commitments to God in my life personally and not always kept them like I should, Um, certainly. But I have only made, that I know of, (laughs) two vows, two actual vows to God. One was my marriage vow. I made a vow to my wife and to God that day that I would honor her, that I would cherish her, and that I would be by her side until, until I die or she dies. Now, the second vow that I made was when I was a teenager, and it was a vow to read the Bible at least five minutes every single day. Um, there was a popular conference back then and many years ago, and a lot of people came to that conference, and the speaker encouraged people to do this, and I p- think probably a lot of people made that vow. And the idea was, you know, I'm making this solemn vow to the Lord that I will do this, And if I ever miss a day, for whatever reason, 
then the next day I'll make sure to read 10 minutes. <laughs> and so that's part of that vow. And I have well made up for any missed day. Um, I, I'll read my Bible much longer than five minutes every single day at this point. But the idea here is that vows are a very serious thing to God and we ought to take them very seriously. But let me, but let me also remind you of God's grace here. If you've ever broken a vow, if you've broken a vow or a promise to God, then here's what we need to do. We need to treat it like a sin, just like any other sin. It is a sin. And what do we do when we've, when we've sinned against God? We confess it, we, repent, we repent, we turn, and we move on because you are forgiven at that point. So if you've made a vow, you've uh, broken a promise to God, I would just encourage you, get the grace of God, thank him for his forgiveness, and, and then from then on, be, don't be rash with your vows in the future. Verse six, suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin. Neither say thou before the angel or the messenger that it was an error. Wherefore should God be angry at thy voice and destroy the work of thine hands? Again, some serious verses here. The word angel means messenger. It seems to be referring to the person who was in charge at the temple. And so God is saying in this verse, don't let your mouth get ahead of you and get you into sin by making promises to God. And then when it's too hard to fulfill those promises, then you go to the person who's in charge at the temple and say, hey, uh, I made this promise to God by mistake. I shouldn't have made it. Um, could you help me out with this? And God says, don't get yourself into that position. Think before you make a promise. Can I fulfill this promise? Don't make these wild, rash promises. God, I'm going to Africa if you'll do this for me. I'm gonna be a missionary to Africa. Be careful, be careful. Don't let your, God takes our words seriously. I, I think that's what we're seeing here. He's serious about your words and he's gonna hold us to our words. Verse seven, for in the multitude of dreams and many words, there are also diverse vanities, but fear thou God. Just like dreams, a lot of words, if a lot of multitude of words, just talk, 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 will just lead you into all kinds of nonsense and vanity. It just leads you into places you didn't mean to go. That's why you need to be careful. So shut the mouth more than you open the mouth. Be very careful with what you say. Say what you mean, mean what you say. Take your words seriously because God does too. Now listen, I wanna say real quick that I am so thankful for you folks right here. This is not a condemning message and I hope you don't feel condemned. I hope you feel encouraged, but I don't feel like this is a place that takes anything lightly. I, the reason you're even here this morning is because you take the word of God seriously and I so appreciate that. This church is a church that takes God and his word and what God's saying so seriously. As a matter of fact, a few weeks ago, I think it was just really just, uh, I wanted to highlight this and let you know. Um, we had a group that came here from out of the state. They sat, uh, there was about 15 or so of them that came in on a bus and they're with a Christian organization and they just came to, because they were coming through California for a conference and they sat in our services. And after the end of the services, I got a voicemail later from one of the folks and the, that kind of was speaking for the whole group. And one of the comments he said, he said, you know, from the moment we walked in the door, everything that we saw, the facility, the music, the preaching, everything that we experienced, he said, it is obvious, these are exact words, it's obvious that you folks have a high view of God. 
You folks have a high view of God. And he was, they were so blessed by it all. And I think that's an interesting comment, and that is true. I want to thank you folks for having a high and holy view of God. And let's keep that. Thank the Lord for a church that knows how to enjoy life, how to have a good time, uh, rejoice, but also to be serious about the things that are serious. Next, Solomon gives some quick wisdom on government, particularly local government, and um, what we all have experienced um, at local <laughs> bureaucracy, red tape. Uh, my dear sister, sister who used to run one of the DMVs, I think she's not here this morning, so I can say all the bad stuff about DMV, right? This morning, no, I'm not. But verse eight, uh, if thou seest the oppression of the poor, and violent perverting of judgment and justice in a province. Marvel not at the matter, for he that is higher than the highest regardeth, and there be higher than they. So in my opinion, the best interpretation of this verse here is that if you see people, or if you're one of these people, particularly the poor and the powerless, and they're being taken advantage of by government officials, um, don't marvel and don't be surprised by this. Because this kind of stuff happens all the time and it happens all the way up all the chains of government, of human government. And it happens in every form of government, in every place and every place around the world. Solomon is basically saying, you better just accept this reality of this world that we live in and find your joy elsewhere. There's no such thing as a human government bringing a utopia right now under the sun. There have been many forms of government throughout history, and each one has its weakness. There will never be a perfect government until Jesus sets up his kingdom. By the way, this is why I wouldn't ever make a decision on where I'm going to live based on politics alone. That's, a, that's not a smart thing. Peace does not come through a president. Love does not come through legislation, and joy does not come through jurisprudence. There are things in life far more important than that. But Solomon adds this, this thing that brings some comfort under the sun, the next verse, verse nine. Moreover, the prophet of the earth is for all. The king himself is served by the field. Now this is a very practical thought. What he's saying is, that you can console yourself with this. Everyone needs the poor farmer, the poor worker, even the king. In other words, the government may, your local government, the people over you, they may mistreat you, they may oppress you, but at the end of the day, remember this, the king is served by the field. He'll find a way of keeping you going. He needs you. He needs all you little peons. Without, and here's what Adam Clark says about this verse. He says, without the field, he cannot have supplies for his own house. And unless agriculture flourish, the necessary expenses of the state cannot be defrayed. Thus, God joins the head and the feet together. For while the peasant is protected by the king as executor of the laws, the king himself is dependent on the peasant, as the wealth of the nation is the fruit of the laborer's toil. You know, we've all probably heard that the most important job in a big city is not the mayor, but it's the trash collectors. If, <laughs> if we go too long without them, cities would be unlivable. 
and disease would be rampant. That's why the trash collectors are more important than the mayor. The Bible is a truthful and a logical book. Now lastly in this chapter, we've learned about God and how to approach him in the house of God. We've learned about government and just a practical thought about government. But lastly, we're going to talk about gold. We're going to talk about wealth, riches, the thing everybody wants. And it's more specifically how to be wise regarding wealth's disadvantages. He's not going to make the point here that riches are bad in and of themselves. And it's okay to have them. It's just not all that people make it out to be. And it's not, it should not be our focus in life. And it should not be the place that we're trying to get meaning or satisfaction. And number one, the disadvantage that he brings out here is in verse 10. And that is the more we have, the more we want. The more we have, the more we want. Verse 10. He that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver. Nor he that loveth abundance with increase. This is also vanity. How much money does it take to be happy? Uh, John Rockefeller famously said, just a little bit more. Studies show that the average person says 20% more would make them happier. <laughs> no matter how much they make, 20% more would make them happier. I'll say that when I was thinking about that, I thought anytime that I've had a big expense item that we're going to buy, um, you know, a car, whatever, it's time to buy something, it does seem like my taste is always about 20% above my budget. That's about right where it lands. I, I, I've, heard about, I've heard about other studies that show uh, people, they ask them, uh, who do you consider to be rich? How much money does it take to be considered rich? And then people will usually say between one and three million dollars, and then that's a rich person. But surprisingly, those who have one to three million dollars don't see themselves as rich, especially in this economy, and I think everybody understands that. Solomon saw the same thing in human nature uh, 3,000 years ago that we see today. The more we have, the more we want. There's an interesting story about William Randolph Hearst. We've been to the Hearst Castle. Maybe many of you have toured the Hearst Castle down on the central coast. Apparently, at one point, uh, Hearst, he, who loved art, and he loved getting things from all over the world and putting it there in his mansion, and he wanted this one particular piece of art. And he, he sent his folks uh, on a search to find this work of art. He wanted it so badly. He said, search high and low. I want it. They searched and searched and searched. And finally, they found it. Guess what? He already owned it. He, he, had, he didn't realize that he had it back in storage. And <laughs> that sounds like some of our closets, I think. Oh, oh I didn't even know I had this, this uh, shirt here. The point is, if we make our life all about money, all about getting wealth or riches, then here's the question he, Solomon's asking. What, when will enough be enough? When will enough be? What will it take to make you truly satisfied? Solomon goes on. And the next point he makes here is that the more we have, the more we spend. Verse 11. When goods increase, they are increased that eat them. This is a verse about teenage boys in your house. <laughs> what good is there to the owners thereof, saving the beholding of them with their eyes? What a true principle here. You make more, 
You consume more. If you buy a house, guess what? You have to buy things to put in the house. You have to buy, you have to buy things to maintain the house. You have to landscape and you have to pay utilities and taxes and everything that goes on top of that great house that you like. If you buy a car, there's also maintenance costs and insurance and the, the more you have, the more that comes with that. In Solomon's day, if you buy a larger home and land, then guess what? You're going to have to employ a lot of people to care for it. When goods increase, they are increased that eat them. Then there are all the people who are after your money. The salespeople, the brilliant marketers out there, they sit around in rooms all day, every day, thinking of ways to eat your money. They have technology that tracks you and knows everything that you've clicked on so they know your likes and your dislikes and guess what? They're gonna feed you only the things that you really like. And so, as it says here, what good is all this money if I'm, just gonna, if I'm basically just a, just a pipe that's just pulling it through and giving it out to somebody else if all I'm doing is beholding the eyes with my money as it passes through? These days, you get the raise that you always wanted at work. And guess what? Inflation goes through the roof. And any, all that raise that you thought was going to help you out and make you happy doesn't make you as happy as you thought. People can't get ahead. The point is, why would someone try to get satisfaction and meaning from riches and wealth? Why would you do that when it just comes and goes, comes and goes, comes and goes? The next thing is, the more we have, the more we worry. The more we have, the more we worry. Verse 12, the sleep of a laboring man is sweet, whether he eat little or much, but the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. Wealthy people often lose sleep over their finances. The more you have, the more you're worried about what to do with it, how to save it, how to protect it. Money often just comes with more stress. The early days, you know, of having less and life is simple, you slept better. <laughs> you went to work, you made your money, you went home, and that's about it. And notice it says, though, the laboring man. This is not saying that this is a completely poor man who has absolutely nothing. No, he just lives a more simple life. He goes to work and he gets paid enough to live. And so he has a good life. And again, there's, uh, there's nothing wrong with being rich. There's nothing wrong with being a laboring man and having enough. That's not, he's not saying that. He's just saying, don't think, do not think that having more stuff comes with less stress. That's not how it works. Wealth can be a blessing, and it should be a blessing, but it can also cause you to have worse quality of life in many other ways if you're not careful. Uh, there's a guy named Jack Whitaker who won the Powerball lottery back in 2002, $314 million. It was the most at, at the time anybody had ever won. He was already a successful businessman, but all that windfall of money proved to be anything but a blessing. And you've all heard the stories of like this. Over the next decade, his, both his granddaughter and her boyfriend died from apparent drug overdoses. His daughter passed away. He was robbed on more than one occasion. He was arrested for driving under the influence. He'd been sued, he was sued by a number of people and businesses, in, including Caesar uh, Atlantic Casino, <laughs> for $1.5 million of bounced checks over gambling losses. More money does not just automatically equal less stress. It often means more stress. Don't try, do not try. The point here is do not try and find fulfillment in riches or money or stuff. That's not where it's at. 
Then the next thing Solomon brings up, and by the way, Solomon would know all this. The next thing is, the more we have, the more we have to lose. Verses 13 to 15, there is a sore evil which I have seen under the sun, namely, riches kept for the owners thereof to their hurt. But those riches perish by evil travail. And he begetteth a son, and there is nothing in his hand. As he came forth of his mother's womb, naked shall he return to go as he came, and shall take nothing of his labor, which he may carry away in his hand. The idea here is of a person who has hoarded their wealth. As it says in verse 13, they have kept it to their hurt. Then in one moment of travail, this person has been so stingy, they've kept everything they can, thinking that this is my security, this is my security, all of this, this is my security, I'll make it to the end with this, this big pot here. And then all of a sudden, in one moment of evil travail, he loses everything. Perhaps a bad business deal, a natural disaster, theft, stock market crash, whatever you want to say these days, it's lost in one fell swoop. He then has nothing to offer his children and he himself then dies with nothing just as he came into this world. The point is here that tragic circumstances can come under the sun and everything that we have can be lost in a moment. Don't ever think that you're 100% safe. We all probably know of the stories of people who have lost everything. Wealth cannot fully protect against evil travail. It may give you a level of security, but even if you have all the insurance in place and all the stuff we think we, we can for security, things just happen. Wealth is never a 100% guaranteed thing. It, when I was thinking about these verses, the first thing that came to mind was the name Bernie Madoff. Such a crazy story. Perhaps the biggest thief ever, really. 64.8 billion dollars in losses. Smart financial experts, experts who did their homework, trusted Bernie Madoff and told other people, you can trust this guy. He takes care of money. He's good at what he does. He's safe. I mean, even, even the government had looked into him and said, he's safe. You can trust this guy. Then thousands of people lost huge sums of money. They lost their homes. They lost their properties. They lost their whole life savings. Careers went down the tube. People jumped out of buildings. Suicide left and right. Even his own family went down the drain and his own family committed suicide. He messed up so much. Let me tell you, this sore evil can happen under the sun. We cannot try and find fulfillment in money, in anything under the sun. Then, the more we have, the more we leave. The more we leave behind. Verses 16 and 17, this, and this also is a sore of evil, that in all points as he came, so shall he go. And what profit hath he that hath labored for the wind? All his days also he eateth in darkness, and he hath much sorrow and wrath with his sickness. Now the point here is, how does wealth really help you after you die? Once you die, what's your money gonna do for you then? One of the things Solomon did throughout the book of Ecclesiastes is to measure everything by death. So in other words, if something in this world cannot 
transcend death, then it cannot bring ultimate fulfillment. Therefore, how, how valuable then really are riches if you can't take them with you when you die? They don't really mean as much as we think they mean. Thankfully, though, now let's think about this as believers. So that's the under the sun perspective. Now let's get above the sun and get God's perspective on money and riches. God has said many things in scripture about how to make your money matter in eternity. And that is to invest in heavenly treasure. Go ahead and store your treasure up in heaven. You can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. And how do you do that? By generous giving to the Lord. That's how you do it. And that's how you make your money actually matter in eternity. So, that's what Solomon is talking about. He's giving this under the sun perspective on riches. You can't trust it. You cannot, um, you cannot make it your goal. You cannot make it your aim. You cannot go after it. And it will not bring fulfillment and meaning in your life. So knowing all of those disadvantages to riches, sh- how should we view then wealth and riches on this earth? What's the right perspective? What's the wisdom for how to view it right now? And I love this. These last few verses are so beautiful. And, and, and stick with me here because there is a profound principle. Here it is. It's all a gift from God. So enjoy it as such. Here we go. Verse 18. Behold, that which I have seen, it is good and comely for one to eat and to drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor that he taketh under the sun all the days of his life, which God giveth him. For it is his portion. Verse 19, every man also to whom God hath given riches and wealth. Again, it's not a bad thing to have it. God gave it, gives it to some people. And hath given him power to eat thereof and to take his portion and look at this, to rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. Once again, Solomon here gives the mindset that he has already given a, a number of times here in Ecclesiastes. And that is, enjoy the life God has given you here. And enjoy it to the fullest within the boundaries God has set. If God has given you wealth and riches under the sun, make sure that you see that that as a gift and enjoy it as such. This is the everything is a gift principle. And that's what Solomon keeps bringing up, keeps bringing everything is a gift, everything is a gift. Notice verse 19, even the capacity to rejoice in your labor is a gift. Even the ability to rejoice is from the Lord. This is a profound principle now. You can't really enjoy this life as it's meant to be enjoyed until God is in the picture. You can't actually truly have the fullest experience in life until you see this all as coming from the hand of God. Once you're finally there and you see that all of this stuff is from him, now you're on the path to actual true happiness and joy and fulfillment here. Otherwise, you're always stressing about money. Otherwise, you're killing yourself to get more and you're not even sure why. Otherwise, you're always complaining about losing money. But once you see it as from the hand of God, 
and you keep bringing your mind and heart back to that place, this is just a gift. It's a temporary gift here. God's given this to me, and I get to enjoy it from his hand, and this is my portion for now. This is what he has given to me, and I'm so thankful. I'm so content. I'm so happy. I want what I have. I'm so thankful for what he's given to me. I'm not looking out there and saying, I want that, I want that, I want that, I want that. No, I'm thankful for what I have. Then your whole view changes, and you just, it, just, it just buoys you up. That's what it means then in verse 20. Look at this. For he shall not re- much remember the days of his life, because God answereth him in the joy of his heart. See, the idea here is when you have this everything is a gift view of life, you don't dwell on the hardships of life. The stuff that happens to you of life, you, you forget about that. You don't remember that. Because God is giving you something more special in your heart. He's answering you with the joy in your heart. You forget about the toil and the pain and you just think about him and the things he's given to you because you've learned to see the things, see things the way they're truly meant to be seen as temporary gifts from the Lord. You now live with joy. Folks, there is just such freedom in this way of thinking and we need to remind ourselves of it regularly. God wants us to be free from being a slave to money or a slave to getting riches or wealth. It's, it's all just a temporary gift from God. Enjoy it as such, and don't make money your master. Don't make money your master. One B- Bible teacher wrote, if anything is worse than the addiction money brings, it's the emptiness that it leaves. Man, with eternity in his heart, needs better nourishment than that. And that, folks, only can come through Jesus above the sun. Lord, we love you. We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.